Hello and welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast chipping away at the history, nature and mythology of Scotland. I'm Annie with my Pictish chisel. And I'm Jenny, an asymmetrical Pictish standing stone that actually fell over centuries ago, so technically I'm a lying stone. We could prop you back up if you like, Jenny. Uh, actually, no, it's all right. I'm, I'm pretty well preserved down here by my blankets of uh, organic matter that cover me. So I'm in this for the long game, Annie. I'm going to stay down here a while. Truly a weight I must carry. <laughs> <laughs> if we're going by any of the stories we have in this episode, it's going to be a very long game for you indeed, Jenny. These stones take a while to get dug up. Don't worry, I have the stamina of a piece of rock. Also, the abs of a rock. I've never seen a rock with abs, Jenny. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> In this episode, we're taking a look at women who are the wilderness. For scattered across Scotland are women turned to stone. Yes. What better way to explore the landscape than truly becoming a part of the environment and lore of Scotland? But first, a wee advert. A big thanks to our sponsors of this episode, WeBox, who managed to pack the joy and excitement of this beautiful country into a wonderful wee box. WeBox is a monthly subscription gift box that is designed to share Scotland with Scots and Scots at heart all over the world. WeBox select delights that are often exclusive or can't be bought outside of Scotland. It's a fantastic gift and great value for money. Plus, WeBox supports Scottish businesses, artisans, the environment and charities too, which are all things that we adore. Visit webox.co.uk and use code STORY10, that's STORY10, at the checkout for an exclusive discount. Yay, Weebox. Yay for Weebox. The National Museum of Scotland, in the heart of Edinburgh's old town, is home to Scotland's treasures from prehistory to the present day. It's open daily with free admission, and it's Scotland's most popular attraction. There's so much to see, from Mary Queen of Scots jewellery to the much-loved Lewis chess pieces, and even Dolly the Sheep. There are six floors of Scottish history to explore. Plus, there are cafes, shops, special exhibitions and much more. Plan your visit now at www.nms.ac.uk Scotland. Last week, I went on a hike on the African Tailway. The second day was spent hiking through a remote rugged glen. The grass on it was so green it was almost luminous. The heather was so purple that I could smell the colour. But the most spectacular part was the towering mountains that we were hiking in the shadow of. For I was in Glen Licht and hiking along the north side, or more commonly in the back, of the Five Sisters of Kintail. These sisters are some of the most iconic mountains in all of Scotland. They're technically three mountains, but between them they have five surprisingly symmetrical pyramidal peaks, each joined to the next by a phenomenal ridgewalk. 
The sisters tower over the north side of Glensheel, and many will have passed through their shadow on the road to Sky. Of all the sisters I know, they are definitely the tallest. They're the kind that you expect to do really well in the school sports day. Oh yeah, they are captain and vice captain of the netball team. In fact, these five sisters make up the entire netball team. <laughs> Although there's actually seven people on a netball team, I think. I don't know. I couldn't deal with the pivoting. <laughs> <laughs> but some say that these exceptionally tall sisters were formed 600 million years ago in the Caledonian orogeny. The great mountain building event that gave us the highlands that we know and love today. Forced upwards by the pressure of colliding tectonic plates and slowly ground down by glaciers in the ice ages that followed. The result is the tallest mountains in the northern highlands and five sisters all proudly looking out over the mountains and glens of northwest Scotland. Hang on a naughty wee minute. You said that only some say this is how they were formed. Ah, yes, some being the geologists. <laughs> the others believe that there is an origin story that is quite different from this orogeny, one that stretches far back into a time when Scotland was not yet Scotland, but rather many smaller fiefdoms, one of which was overseen by the King of Kintail. Ah, okay, so this is the mythological version of the Caledonian orogeny. Please do go on. <laughs> there were once seven sisters, all daughters of this king of Kintail. Each sister was bonnier than the last, which made the eldest a little irksome, but she was still bonnier than the last from the glen over. Plus, Annie, looks aren't everything. She was also really good at crosswords. In fact, each of the seven sisters was incredibly talented in their own field of interest, from Sudoku to cryptic puzzles. One night, a storm of mighty proportions, unlike anything any living person had ever seen, tore off the Atlantic and through the glens of Kintail. As people huddled in their thatched houses, praying their roofs would hold, they spoke in hushed tones of the legends and myths born of such storms. When the weather cleared the next morning, the king sent his seven daughters across his land to assess the damage and report back. His two youngest daughters went down to the shore, and there they found a wrecked ship. And amongst the wreckage lay two young, handsome, if a little seaweedy, men. The sisters rushed to clear the men from the wreckage, and as they did so, the two men awoke from their storm-induced slumber. These men happened to not only be brothers, but also princes, and they set their eyes upon the sisters and instantly fell in love. For the last that these men remember, they were sure to be dead, never to wake again. And yet here they were, alive on the shores of Scotland, saved from their wreckage by the two bonniest lassies they'd ever seen. I mean, good on them. Nothing like a near-death experience to make you want a lifelong commitment to someone. And luckily for the brothers, their feelings were reciprocated, because our two sisters were instantly enamoured by the brave and buoyant men from the sea. Only, they weren't from the sea, 
they were from Ireland. Their wee vessel had been bound back to Irish shores when the great storm caught them and relentlessly carried them all the way to the beach at Kintail. The maidens took the men back to their father and asked for them to be given food and shelter until they were fit to return back to Ireland. The king, a musty-smelling yet fair man, agreed, and the castaways were welcomed into his home. Over the course of seven days, the love between the daughters and the Irish fellows deepened. So much so, that on the seventh day, each brother asked the king to take one of his daughter's hands in marriage. Now, the father liked the two Irish princes, and he could see how happy his two bonniest daughters were. However, tradition states that the eldest daughter must be married first, and the father was a stickler for tradition. And so, he refused to grant permission for the marriages. But lo, the elder of the Irish brothers stepped forward and smiled his most charming smile. It's a fair point you make, my good sir, and we're not wanting to cause any tradition-breaking trouble. But it just so happens that we are also two of seven siblings, and back in Ireland, we have five more brothers. Each is a reliable and emotionally intelligent man, and each too is looking for a hand in marriage. If you so permit us to marry your daughters, we shall return home and fetch them, and come back with a husband for each of your remaining shining lassies. Now, the king was overjoyed to hear this. He loved a really solid Irish accent. Which these brothers clearly didn't have. (laughs) For if the five remaining brothers were as respectable as these two, then they would be the perfect husbands for his talented problem-solving daughters. And so, he ran this by the eldest five sisters, and each agreed that this sounded like a good plan. And so, the father granted the Irish fellows his daughters' hands in marriage, and a great ceremony was had. The celebrations were to be remembered for at least three weeks. The next day, the newlywed couples boarded a ship on the very same beach they had met. As they stood waving from the deck, shouting promises of a swift return, the five sisters on the shore waved back and began their wait. And wait, they did. Days passed, and soon these days turned to weeks and the leaves on the trees turned yellow and brown and fell to the ground, slowly welcoming winter. Winter too passed, and each day the sisters would rush to the shore, searching the horizon endlessly for ships that never appeared. With each passing season, the bonny sisters wept for their lost time and begged their father to let them marry other men. But... As we know, the king was a stickler for tradition and refused to believe that his two youngest daughters would never return. The eldest daughter was now almost beyond the age for marriage and so the king came up with a solution. He put on his thick travelling cloak and headed out into the mountains. After walking for some time, he reached the ramshackle house of the grey witch of Corre Gunaj. Here, he asked the powerful and respected witch for help. 
Oh, great grey witch. Would you please be so kind as to grant my daughter's youthfulness until their fair husbands arrive? The witch agreed surprisingly easily and sent the king on his way. That night, once again, a tremendous storm tore through the glen, and when the king awoke from his fitful sleep, his five bonny daughters were nowhere to be seen. That is, until he stepped out into the daylight and saw five huge towering peaks standing where once there had been shore. For the witch had turned his daughters to stone, and still they stand, forever looking out to the Atlantic, eternally waiting for their husband's arrival, upon which day they will be transformed back to their youthful selves, a day that is still yet to come. Wow, these poor sisters. It feels like they got the raw end of the steel. Yeah, they definitely did. I think the two younger sisters get there happily ever after, but at the expense of their older sisters who just get stone forever after. But at least they have been eternally memorialised and their beauty is still admired to this day. And their crossword ability. And in all honesty, when you look at the five sisters of Kintail, if you imagine them reading the newspapers and filling in the Sudoku, you know, that's not a bad life for a mountain. No, it's not. <laughs> you can see all of the sisters from the Mam Ratigan Pass, which has a phenomenal view out over the mountains and all of Kintail. I remember when I first drove through the pass and I had no idea I was about to see a world famous view and when I came over the brow and it opened up I was I was utterly astounded by it and luckily they uh, planned for this because there's a very nice roadside car park for people to sort of enjoy the view and I pulled over and I stayed there for about 25 minutes which is a long time to stay in a roadside car park full of midges. I've heard that if you stay there for too long, a witch comes along and turns you into one of the midges, Jenny. And that's actually what happened to the original Jenny. I'm just 70,000 midges all packed into a flannel shirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, midgey Jenny. In 1944, the Scottish Mountaineering Club president, Percy Una, raised funds for the National Trust of Scotland to purchase the Five Sisters and most of the Kintail area too. It's a gorgeous place with astounding views, as you say, and certainly worth a visit. It is, and because it's in National Trust hands, the hiking trails are really well maintained. They're beautiful. There's a couple bothies in the glens. Um, there's even a youth hostel like in the middle of the glens. It's really great. So if you're looking for a wonderful place to go hiking, in Scotland, I highly recommend this whole Kintail area. I was really intrigued by the theme of this episode when you described the idea of women transformed to stone. And then, when we looked into these stories and were researching, we realise that there's not a single region of Scotland without its own women trapped in stone. Yeah, and the legends are really prevalent. 
At first, I wondered what these stones were representing, because they often describe the death of a woman. Her memory and story are transferred into the rock. However, they don't feel like gravestones marking the presence of the dead. Instead, the stones that legends tell us were once women alive with stories, they have this strange immortality to them. Aye, you can imagine a wee bit of spirit or soul, an essence of someone lingering within the stone. But it's more than that, Annie. You see, stone appears permanent and static, but that's only when you measure it against a human lifespan. I imagine the woman trapped in stone to be carved out by wind and rain and a thousand storms, so that one day they are released and walk again. As though the women who were turned to stone through ancient magics could one day be set free by the same magic. And for me, there's one stone that I really want to come to life again. It's called the Maiden Stone in Aberdeenshire, four and a half miles north of Inveruri. This is a stunning Pictish stone from just after 700 Common Era, which makes it up to 1300 years old. That's almost as old as you, Annie. Almost as old as that joke, Jenny. <laughs> that's fair, that's fair. <laughs> but I'm surprised that you pick this one as looking as though it's full of life, because despite what I just said, it does kind of have heavy gravestone vibes. No, no. The beautiful <laughs> Pictish carvings are what make it feel timeless. I adore Pictish carvings, as listeners already know. I'm dyslexic, and I always find myself very drawn to languages that use pictorial symbols as opposed to letters. I think it shows a whole different kind of mindset, and I feel that when you look at Pictish stone, it is open to a thousand different translations into a million different stories and it's astounding. It is because at the end of the day we don't know what these Pictish symbols mean. They're like hieroglyphs but without a Rosetta Stone to unlock the translation of whatever meaning they once had. Aye, but I have hopes that we'll one day decipher them. With the rise of our pictorial language of emojis and memes, <laughs> as methods of communication, it's not long until Gen Z figures out these Pictish carvings. Flame emoji, flame emoji, 100 emoji. <laughs> <laughs> but one message that hasn't been lost to time is that the Picts had excellent stone selection skills. You see, this monolith is made of a cooked salmon pink granite. Nay, nay, winter sunrise red granite. Or perhaps a bright, blushing haggis colour. Those are my three favourite lipsticks. <laughs> and I would say to anyone, if your haggis is a light pink, don't eat it. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you've embarrassed it with a naughty joke and it's just blushing. <laughs> Not another blushing haggis. <laughs> that's that's going to be my trad band name. <laughs> But it's not just the colour of the Maiden Stone that I love, because this is one very impressive piece of rock. It stands high at over three metres tall, and that's what we can see of it. 
Often, standing stones go deep into the earth, ensuring that they can stay standing for millennia. But what is really special about this stone are the distinctive carvings. So it has four carved sides, but it's shaped like a very tall, elongated gravestone. So we have a broad front and back and two narrow sides. And either bad weather or an angry stonemason has taken a wee triangle-shaped bite out of the middle. Each of the thin sides are carved with interlaced and interwoven knotwork. On one of the main sides, we have a Celtic Christian cross with a ring in the centre. Above this striking cross are two faded dragons facing a central figure. All sources assume it's a man, as he has a pointed beard, and he's stretching his hands towards each of the dragons on his sides. The wee bearded figure is wearing perhaps a tunic, robe, or dress. What do you think he's doing with the dragons, Jenny? So I was having a really good look at this, and I was like, I've seen this before somewhere. And then I realised that this is definitely the original storyboard for How to Train Your Dragons. (laughs) (laughs) Because the dragons are obediently guarding him. They're not preparing to attack. Although they do have the expressions on their big dragon faces of a cat or a dog trying to convince their owner that they haven't been fed. So the man is definitely in control, put it that way. He's not being threatened by the dragons. He's going to get their lunch for them. We don't know who this figure is or whether he had fed his dragons and is just about to get them some lunch. (laughs) Though I think it almost looks like an angel, but instead of wings, he has dragons. Though in many of the stories of Christian missionaries interacting with the Picts, they're actually banishing these ancient monsters. So I think this is likely what's happening. Okay. This man is likely a big biblical figure, or perhaps a saint. There are some scholars who think it's Jonah, but we just, we don't know. He's not got a name tag carved on. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, my name is Jonah. (laughs) The religious depictions on this stone lead some people to think that it's a marking of a preaching site during the conversion of the Picts. The stone is representing the transitional period of the Pictish people going from whatever ancient beliefs they had, which we don't know much about, into the Christian faith. I think this is one of the things that makes the Pictish carvings so enticing. You want to know the meanings of these epic symbols that they chose to literally carve in stone. Dragons and hybrid beasts. On the opposite side of the Maiden Stone, it's a bit of a mystery. We see four panels. The upper one has a carving of a centaur, surrounded by other four-legged animals. And unfortunately, the very top is chipped off, so we can't see the heads of all these animals um, to tell you what kind they are. I wish we knew Legends of the Picts, because they have such evocative images. I would love to know what they believed about the centaurs. Were they deities or spirits or ancestral or enemies? What were these things? One day, Annie, people will wonder the same thing about the emojis that we use. (laughs) Why do they use so many peaches? (laughs) (laughs) But 
below the centaurs, we have a notched rectangle that some have suggested is an exceptionally fancy gate. And let me tell you, Annie, if I had a gate like that on the front of my house, it would be far better than what I have right now, which is nothing. I don't even have a fence. (laughs) (laughs) But this is the magical gate to the woodlands of the centaurs. Oh, okay, I do quite like that, because below the gate, we have our favourite Annie, the Pictish Beast. We love this, and we have spoken about it before. It's the legendary creature that looks a lot like a land dolphin. And apparently makes the noise of a land dolphin, which Jenny also loves to make. (laughs) I'm actually, we haven't had a land dolphin in a really long time, so I'm very glad <laughs> that we, we got one in. <laughs> and the final panel at the bottom of this side of the stone has a depiction of a comb and mirror, which many a historian believe is likely used by the Pictish beast for styling her hair. Not many a historian, Jenny, just you. <laughs> and I'm not even really a historian. <laughs> If the Pictish beast looks like a land dolphin, which we know it does, how would it have hair? Well, it's got the body of a dolphin, but the hair of a horse. It's like me. That's what I look like. (laughs) (laughs) But I can just see it, Annie. The Pictish beast is looking in her mirror and styling her long mane. Though we don't know what the Pictish carvings mean, we know 100% they do not mean that. But then, in a funny little anomaly of life, the stories about the Maiden Stone don't actually mention these illustrations. Ah, okay, so our mysterious Maiden of the Maiden Stone isn't a hairstyling Pictish beast. No, it's a story about a young woman of Drumderno. She was the daughter of a farmer... And she goes unnamed in the legend, so let's call her Marjorie, as that's a good medieval name for the east coast of Scotland. Marjorie was as lovely as anyone could be, doing all the classic romantic things a young farmer's daughter could do. She would sing along with the songbirds of Aberdeenshire, the skylark and the marsh warbler, and they would join in chorus with her. But... She had a particular talent for tending to the turnip patch, and her turnips were widely regarded as the finest at the harvest festival. They were large and juicy and full of sweet, neepy goodness. Mmm, a juicy neep. Perfect for making turnip wine. But it was her large and juicy neeps that caught the attention of all the young farmers. Marjorie's heart was as light as a feather in the wind. And many who met her and admired her dedication to growing strong vegetables asked for her hand in marriage. She had a beauty in her way of seeing the world and enjoyed getting her hands dirty in the fields. And this, let me tell you, in rural Aberdeenshire a couple hundred years ago, like top of the list for desirable traits in a potential partner. And at the Midsummer Fair, Marjorie had queues of men and women asking for her hand in marriage. Ultimately, Marjorie chose a young lad well known for his excellent tatty crops and she felt that she had made a good selection 
as together they just needed to figure out parsley and then they'd be able to make some really lovely soup. Her unsuccessful wooers retreated in disappointment. However, they all respected her choice. They wouldn't say no to such a fine tatty either, so they wished her and her new fiancé a long life and happiness together, in the hopes that they would share their soup. And everyone at the Midsummer Fair wished Marjorie well, except one spiteful little farmer. The nasty suitor had something rotting in his heart. He could not seduce Marjorie with his limp cabbage, and so instead he brooded in evil thoughts of vengeance. She had rejected him, and he could not take it. His leaves were wilting in rage. (laughs) Angrily, he stomped around cursing Marjorie and his potato-wealthy rival. He wandered in the gloaming hour down by the dark woods of Pitodre, muttering to himself. As nasty and horrible thoughts swam in his head, he exclaimed, Oh, if only my eternal destruction could plague their earthly peace, how soon and sure the bargain would be mine. A common utterance for those who are heart sore. Scarcely had the rash words passed his lips when the great enemy of all living things appeared before him and answered merrily. Capital wish. I'll do the thing for you on your own terms, my good man. And the bargain was at once concluded. Little did the limp cabbage farmer realise the unspeakable evil of the deal he had just made for it was made with the most heartless demon of them all, the devil. One day before Marjorie and the tatty man's wedding, she was busy baking cakes for the bridal feast. And as she baked, she gaily lilted one of the love songs of the district. Suddenly, a handsome, rollicking stranger entered the kitchen and made the bantering remark, It suits ye well to bake, lass. If only you had mere speed at it. Marjorie was not interested in this rollicking stranger and firmly replied, I ken myself whether it suits me well or no, and I think none could grudge my speed. My bridal bannocks are coming along at the speed they're supposed to. After some further blethering with the stranger, the mystery fellow made some frankly ridiculous statements. He said that Marjorie was too slow at baking her bridal bannocks and that he could lay a cosy to the top of the mither tap of Benachy before Marjorie had finished her fur lot. What? Okay, (laughs) so let's unpick this wager. The stranger believes that he can build a cosy to the top of Benachy, which is a bonny big hill. A cosy is a Scots word for a big path that's laid with cobblestones. He's essentially making a road, which is a lot of work. He thinks he can do this before Marjorie finishes her furlet. A furlet is a medieval Scots measurement for grains. So the bet is that this stranger can build a cobblestone road up the big hill of Benachy before Marjorie finishes her baking. This is a big claim, 
and Marjorie laughs at the stranger. But he continues that if he wins the bet, then her hand in marriage and heart would be his reward. Deeming this a piece of idle fun, Marjorie thoughtlessly agrees to the proposal. Whereupon the stranger went on his way and Marjorie resumed her task of baking her wedding bannocks. Twilight drew in briskly and the furlough of meal was nearly ended and the stranger and his wager were long forgotten. Marjorie was thinking only of her betrothed who had promised to call on her with a lovely dish of stovies. The evening came down gloomy and wet and as the maiden of Drumdurno looked out for her fiancé, she observed the clouds gather atop Benechay, and alas, she saw a well-finished cosy up the slope of the Mither Tap. At the very same moment, she beheld the stranger, who was no other than the Prince of Hell, quickly and noiselessly coming to claim his reward. She dropped her last bannock, and fled towards the Pitodri woods, hoping to meet her one true tatty love in the trees, or someone who might save her from his infernal majesty. Oh, poor Marjorie, for there was no earthly help at hand, and just as the stranger was about to grab her, the heavens intervened. As the devil grabbed her by the shoulder, he realised that she was transformed into a block of lifeless granite. And there she stands to this day. In truth of this tradition, the cause may still be seen, and on the stone, her kneading board and bread spade are forever remembered. The stone is standing where Marjorie had been seized by the foul fiend, the devil. All mourned for Marjorie and the broth of love that never was. Oh, that's a wee heartbreaking story, isn't it? It is. I spent a wee while looking at the maiden stone and trying to figure out which bits were interpreted as being the bread spade. And it was a case of not being able to see the wood for the trees. I spent so much time looking for bread related objects within the carvings themselves that it wasn't until I stepped back that I saw the whole stone itself is in the shape of a bread spade. Because of this wee triangular notch out of it, it gives really big bread paddle vibes. Nice. I don't know what a bread paddle is, but I'm guessing they look just like this stone. Aye, 100%. There are actually a few variations of the maiden stone tale. This is the one we like the best, but in some stories, the young woman is actually part of the ruling and rich families of the area. She's sometimes a daughter of two feuding lairds who falls in love with the son of her father's rival. It's really the Romeo and Juliet of Aberdeenshire, but with more bread. (laughs) (laughs) And in this version, the young lovers run away together and the fathers chase after them, appalled that their children aren't maintaining the family feud. Various jewels of honour ensue between the fathers, and the young woman tries to break them apart by standing between them. And here, her father accidentally stabs her, and she dies. And he erects the stone in her honour. 
swords are never the answer. But this Shakespearean version of the story is about the families Leslie, Forbes, Stuart and Mortimer. So if these names ring a bell with you amongst your family trees, then please do investigate the Maidenstone. Or, mayhaps, if you're listening in Greece, or, like many folks around the world, you find yourself fascinated by Greek mythology, then the Maidenstone also has something special for you. Because only a short walk away, there's an impressive statue of Persephone from the Greek mythologies. It was erected in the 1960s, and she's holding the same mirror as in the Pictish Maidenstone. So the two are kind of reflecting each other, which is lovely. Funny how they made a statue of Persephone, but not the maiden from the stories. (laughs) (laughs) But there you go. Two wonderful stones for the price of one. What a bargain. Well, I like that it's two women captured in stone because then you know they've got each other there forever you've got persephone and the maiden of drumderno and they can just have a blather play some chess do whatever stone folks do okay yeah do you think the maiden of drumderno spoke ancient greek (laughs) i mean after a few centuries i'm sure they've managed to find a common language Oh yes, dragon, dragon, centaur, gate, dragon, centaur, Jonah. (laughs) (laughs) A big thanks to our sponsors of this episode, Weebox, who managed to pack the joy and excitement of this beautiful country into a wonderful Wee Box. Wee Box is a monthly subscription gift box that is designed to share Scotland with Scots and Scots at heart all over the world. Weebox select delights that are often exclusive or can't be bought outside of Scotland. It's a fantastic gift and great value for money. Plus, Weebox supports Scottish businesses, artisans, the environment and charities too, which are all things that we adore. Visit weebox.co.uk and use code STORY10, that's STORY10, at the checkout for an exclusive discount. Yay, Weebox! Yay for Weebox! The National Museum of Scotland, in the heart of Edinburgh's old town, is home to Scotland's treasures from prehistory to the present day. It's open daily with free admission, and it's Scotland's most popular attraction. There's so much to see, from Mary Queen of Scots jewellery to the much-loved Lewis chess pieces, and even Dolly the Sheep. There are six floors of Scottish history to explore. Plus, there are cafes, shops, special exhibitions, and much more. Plan your visit now at www.nms.ac.uk slash Scotland. One of my favourite episodes that we've ever done, Annie, is the one on Smoo Cave. Ah yes, Smoo Cave, a gem in the crown of the North Coast. And in our back catalogue. (laughs) (laughs) Those of you with better memories than me may recall a story we told in that episode about a fellow called Donald Mackay. 
Donald was born in the village of Ray, on the very far north coast of Scotland in the late 16th century. He led an extraordinary life and eventually became the first ever Lord of Ray. He travelled far and wide, and it was said on one of his trips that he met the devil and got on so well with him that he enrolled in the Devil's School of Dark Arts. Oh, not the Devil's School of Dark Arts. Mm -hmm. It's just a two-week-long course when you learn the best way to get away with embezzlement. (laughs) Or endevilment. Stop. Yeah, they definitely don't teach you anything about puns there, put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) But at the end of the two weeks, the devil required his payment. And the payment he demanded of his class was the soul of the last person to leave the classroom. Everyone in the room fell into a hurried frenzy, although none of them ran because there was no running allowed in the corridors. Mm, You don't want to anger the demon hall monitor. Exactly. And so they all just sped walked as quickly as they could towards the door. Now... Donald had never quite managed to get his speed walking technique down properly. He just didn't have the hips for it. And so he found himself last to leave the class. As the devil leant in to steal his soul, Donald cannily said, Ah, you said you'd take the last, and yet I'm no the last. And he pointed to his shadow behind him. And luckily for Donald, The devil had forgotten to put in his contacts that morning, and so he stole his shadow instead of his soul. That's endevilment right there. (laughs) Clearly a good student. (laughs) (laughs) And so Donald returned to the far north of Scotland, and while his shadow was no longer on his heels, the devil sure was. Determined to get his payment, the devil slid into Donald's fireplace one night. Ah yes, before you could slide into someone's DMs, you had to slide into their fireplace instead. It was a true baptism by fire. The flame emoji's real meaning. Fire, fire, fire. The devil and Donald proceeded to have a fist fight. And to everyone's surprise, Donald won. And with each final blow he struck the old prince of darkness, a small devilish imp flew from him. And when the devil finally retreated, pointed tail between his legs, the small imps remained, ready to serve their new master. And the little imps demanded to be put to work. Hardly believing his luck, Donald set them off into his fields to harvest his crops. But once the harvesting was done, the imps wanted still more work. And so Donald sent them to build some stone dikes all around his land. But once this was done, it became clear that the imp's insatiable appetite for work could not be quenched, for they demanded yet more work. There must be more to be done. Racking his brain for a new time-consuming task, Donald instructed the imps to drain the loch on the far side of Clash Brack. Not only would this take them a long time, It was also said that there was a chest of gold drowned in the murky depths of the waters. And Donald fancied that gold. For embezzlement requires time and patience, and Donald was short of cash. Now the hardy folk of Ray had noticed Donald's little workers, 
and had seen that he had no shadow. And they also heard him boasting about beating the devil in a fistfight at the pub. So it's fair to say they were very suspicious of his dark ways. On his own land, let him do as he pleases, they said. But the loch was not on his land. The land, you see, was overseen by the Kayach of Clash Brack. She was an old, old woman who seemed to have been an old woman for a very long time. No one in the village had ever known her as young, and all her long life she'd lived up on the shores of the loch, overlooking the waters in rain, shine, and dense, dense midgy clouds. She had an affinity with the deer that roamed the boggy moors, and loved nothing more than watching them as they gathered on the shores of the loch to drink from its refreshing waters. She did not feel that she owned the land. Yes, all her life she'd lived upon it and survived off it, but she was as much the land as the loch itself. And each night when she took herself off to bed, she felt the land taking her into its fold. So, when she woke up on a cold Tuesday, the sun still not yet risen, and heard an almighty commotion outside, she quickly put on her welly boots and went to investigate. She found this small army of imps digging a deep channel towards the loch. Horrified, she lifted her walking staff in the air and from the depths of her ancient lungs bellowed, In the name of God, what are you doing? The power and passion in the kayak's words terrified the imps, and they vanished into thin air, pickaxes and shovels clattering to the ground. Donald had been overseeing the work, and upon witnessing his army of free labour disappear, he flew into a rage fit for the devil. He picked up a shovel, raised it high above his head, and charged at the old kayak. But before he could bring it down and make contact with her, she turned herself to stone, solidifying where she stood, welly boots and all. And there she still stands protecting the bogs and moors and lochs that she so loves from the never-ending greed of those who do business with the devil. Wow! I love this Kach. She's a mix between the ancient deity of the environment that we know and love and then just a wee old woman who lives peacefully beside a loch, minding her own business and watching the deer and who clearly just cares about the place. She is a wonderful blurring of the liminal lines between this world and the world of ancient environmental deities. I searched the old maps for a long time looking for this exact spot, and while the stone still stands and is marked, the loch is gone and a boggy expanse has taken its place. The surrounding land has been planted with forestry, which now surrounds our standing stone kayak. And there she remains, amongst this ever-evolving landscape. A lone standing stone stretching back through time and carrying on long into the future. I adore that her story has survived. 
and that we're able to share it with you all listening. This kayak stands as a reminder that the landscape is not just pretty, but it's also precious and it needs to be protected to the point that we should turn ourselves to stone to save it. <laughs> a healthy environment does wonders for us humans. It's integral to the soul of the people who live upon it. Just as our stories are woven through the landscape, so are we. And this is the last episode of our Radical Mountain Women season, kindly supported by the Royal Society of Literature. Over this last season, we've been taking inspiration from the early Scottish Mountaineering Club journals, searching in the writing for any mention of women, and then following the paths that they lead us on. From the Salisbury Crags in the heart of Edinburgh, to the isolated sea stacks of St Kilda, We've been exploring this relationship between women and the wilderness. And it's been a really fun series. We've discovered that our landscape is the tangible evidence we have for our intangible folklore. We've learnt about real people and historic events. From middle and upper class women who went to the hills for sport and adventure. To the working class women who lived and laboured in the glens, standing up for their rights and protecting their crofts. And finally, the mythological women interwoven with the landscape for centuries. And for us too, we've gone a good few miles for this series. My favourite was hiking up Clack Fan to the Women's Stone in search of the ancient threads of tradition, fertility and meaning in that wonderful wee journey to the granite outcrop at the heart of the Cairngorms. Thank you so much for joining us on this wee hike. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you did, then you can head over to our Patreon and subscribe to help support us as we carry on plodding through the history of Scotland. We've got an absolutely fabulous season coming up that's letting us share some incredible stories of Scottish history and culture. So I really can't wait for our next episodes. And our patrons are the people who really help us make this happen. So your support is a fantastic way to help your favourite independent podcasters. That's us. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> So, a hundred thousand thanks to our newest Patreons, James and Brenda. Hello. Hello. Welcome to you both. I like to think of you both as giants. You are people made of stone. And you are playing your favourite game, which is, of course, musical statues. <laughs> Whenever it gets dark, you bring out the rock music and you have a wonderful party and then when the sun rises you just hold hold that statue form so that no one can see that you're really giants made of stone and sometimes tourists are taking pictures of you and you need to stretch a little bit but you always manage to do it in between the moments when the shutter is clicking on their camera so well done you 
you also have an incredibly successful bakery which specialises in sourdough loaves and rock buns and you use the baking spade of the maiden stone to... Nice, nice working that in. <laughs> to move your sourdough around <laughs> and your favourite customers are the five sisters of Kintail who always give you help on your Sudoku puzzles and your crossword. And it's a good life being giants and playing musical statues and baking rock buns, which are delicious. So thank you kindly. And until next time, Slanjava. Slanjava. Mmm, a juicy neep. Perfect for making turnip wine. Can you actually make turnip wine? Like, can you turn turnips into alcohol? Yeah. Yes, my family have done it. We've spoken about this on the podcast before. I know, but I just never know if you're joking or not. Turnip wine? <laughs> I don't know if there's like a, like a long running, you're just subtly taking the mickey out of me. <laughs> I wish it was a legend, but this is called hard facts. You can make turnip wine. But should you? Should you really? No. I think we should try. I think that'll be our merch. It'll be like, don't buy a t-shirt, buy a bottle of cold, juicy turnip wine. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll sell none of it. <laughs> I love it. All right. But her large and juicy neeps caught the attention of all the young farmers. <laughs> Can I say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He could not seduce Marjorie with his limp cabbage. (laughs) Something funny about that, Jenny? (laughs) I've just, I just, I've just seen a couple limp cabbages, you know, and it's a very good description. (laughs) We all know someone with a limp cabbage. (laughs) He could not seduce. He could not seduce <laughs> Marjorie. Who do you know with a limp cabbage, Jenny? <laughs> ah, Donald clearly learnt something in this class because he embezzled the devil himself. <laughs> I'm not sure either of us know what embezzlement actually is, but we'll go with it. 